According to your website, and I'm just going back to some basic stuff, student-athlete health, safety, and well-being remain our top priorities. Yet in court papers filed for a lawsuit in which a family sued the NCAA after their son died from a brain injury suffered in a preseason football practice, the NCAA asserted that, quote, the NCAA denies that it has a legal duty to protect student-athletes, close quote. I find that extraordinary. Now, I know what your answer is going to be, and that's going to, that's going to upset me. But the question is, how do you reconcile your website's publicly stated priority of promoting health and safety with your private legal arguments, uh, which you will declare somehow are different, that the NCAA doesn't have a legal duty to protect student-athletes? You either do or you don't. Yeah, I, I, I will not uh, quibble about the language. I think that was, uh, at the very least, a terrible choice of words created by legal counsel to make a legal argument. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to uh, defend or deny what a, a lawyer wrote in, a, in a, a lawsuit. I will unequivocally state we have a clear moral obligation to make sure that we do everything we can to support and protect student athletes. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I also have been writing in a blog for over two years, and there's some good stuff there, I think. So you can check that out at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. In this installment on our discussion on pay for play, which is really focused on the fundamental relationship between the revenue producing athletes who provide the value in the money making products of big time football and big time men's basketball relate to the institutional interests. And so far, really, our discussion has focused on two primary concerns that the institutional stakeholders have and how they've defined their relationship to these athletes. One is the regulation of the talent acquisition market and this crazy, sometimes irrational war over gaining a competitive advantage or losing a competitive advantage in that talent acquisition market. And that was really the hallmark of all the, of the discussions about how the institutions were going to relate to and treat the athletes who provided the value in the product. And that was true in this first uh, phase in the early 20th century up till World War II. And then it accelerated for the reasons I discussed in the second installment of this series. Between 1945 and 1956, then you had the scholarship limit, this fixed scholarship limit that was based purely on athletics ability that went into effect in 1956. And that was really the agreement among all of the big-time football interests to put a fixed price on the cost of labor. And it was, by any rational conceptualization of amateurism, outright pay for play because they were paying for the athletic skill, talent, and labor of these athletes. And that era coincided with the NCAA's acquisition of meaningful and substantial enforcement jurisdiction and authority. So the NCAA could enforce that scholarship limit at the national level. And that is a really important component of the evolution of the relationship between the athletes and the institutions. Then we shift into the phase where the big time football interests are starting to see the potential in the television market. The market's exploding and we go through all the milestones leading up to Miles Brand's collegiate model that we just talked about. And all of those milestones were driven by big time football's desire to have absolute control over the their relationship with the athlete, absolute control over the NCAA governance process, and absolute control over the big time 
college football marketplace. And through a variety of mechanisms that we've already discussed, they achieved all those things. And the most important among all those milestones was the Board of Regents decision in 1984, where big time football won its financial freedom from the NCAA. And the post Board of Regents era saw these big time powerful football interests jockeying for position to see who was going to have access to the piles of cash that were mounting from the increased demand for big-time college football in the television market. So as that process played out, you had the big-time football interests aggregating their power to control the most valuable products in the college football marketplace. And that discussion uh, evolved into a discussion about who was going to have access to the postseason bowl payoffs. And those were massive payoffs with the big bowl games. And you started to see a battle between the haves and the have-nots express itself. And the have-nots were rattling the cage in Congress. And then you had these hearings that went to the big-time football interests monopoly over the bowl games and most of the revenue in big-time college football. And so you had the 19. 1997 hearings, you had the 2003 hearings, you had the 2005 hearings. But in all of those discussions, the central issue was who was going to have a seat at the big boys table. And the issues were all framed around institutional interests. There was virtually no discussion about the relationship between the universities, conferences, and the NCAA on the one hand, and the revenue-producing athletes on the other. This was a business dispute. And when Miles Brand formulated his conceptualization of the collegiate model as a business model in his 2006 speech... He wasn't really thinking about threats that were coming from athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. He was looking for some grand justification and a grand synthesis of all of the concerns that had been raised during this fight over the football money and how to address it in a way that would fend off these external regulators. So Brand puts together this collegiate model, which is so important in this discussion about the fundamental relationship, because even though Brand wasn't really focused on athlete threats, he came up with a formula. He came up with a very specific business model that tacitly acknowledged the value of the revenue-producing athletes to the entire big-time college sports marketplace and to higher education more broadly because he tried to bring those two together in his conceptualization of the collegiate model. And the essential ingredient in that grand justification was the maximum commercial exploitation of big-time football and big-time men's basketball. But then, just a month after that January 2006 State of the Association speech on the collegiate model, this group of athletes files a lawsuit against the NCAA in California claiming that the athletic scholarship that was set below the full cost of attending college violated federal antitrust laws. And this was such an important event because it completely changed the lay of the land. Because for the first time in the history of the NCAA, athletes were challenging, directly challenging, NCAA compensation limits as applied to athletes. And this wave of antitrust litigation filed by athletes in California, this trilogy of cases, White, O'Bannon, and Austin, went directly to the fundamental relationship between the laborers who provided the value in football and men's basketball and the institutional beneficiaries of that labor. And it was a threat that was unlike anything that NCAA had ever faced. And even though these lawsuits arose in the context of kind of arcane Byzantine antitrust principles, they were all premised on fundamental principles of fairness and equity and justice and exploitation. And Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model is a perfect definition of exploitation. You hear that word tossed around, tossed around a lot in athletes' rights discussions. And you hear it on uh, these talk shows on the sports networks, and you read it in articles. But exploitation is exactly what Miles Brand was describing when he formulated the collegiate model to require 
the maximum revenue generation in football and men's basketball, and then the transfer of that wealth away from the people who earned the money to people who couldn't pay their own way and who were in a better position economically than the people who they were taking the money from. That's exploitation. That is the perfect exploitation definition. And so you had this sense as these lawsuits were being filed that there was going to be a fundamental transformation in the nature of college athletics and the relationship between these high-value laborers and the institutional beneficiaries. And and I talked about this a little bit in episode 16, which was the Austin guessing game. And I was trying to temper expectations in terms of what the Supreme Court might do. And I went back and I talked about all the fanfare that these uh, suits in California generated when they were filed. And that was true with White and O'Bannon and Austin. And these were going to be the lawsuits. This was going to be the stake in the heart of the NCAA's amateurism-based model and NCAA corruption and NCAA exploitation and all this stuff. And that really didn't come to pass. So when we're talking about this, these cases, when we're moving into the 2006 perfect storm era, I want to talk about them on two levels. One, what exactly were the athletes asking for in the lawsuit? And related to that, what did they actually get within the four corners of the litigation? So that's one track here. The second track is how did the NCAA and the Power Five or the big time football interests respond to that threat outside of the litigation because there was enormous fear and uncertainty through this entire litigation way from 2006 really to the present because Austin still hasn't been resolved. But a lot of what happened to the benefit, for the benefit of athletes, happened not in the lawsuits themselves, but outside through voluntary rulemaking because of the fear of what might happen in those lawsuits. And for the purposes of this episode, I'm really going to take us into 2014. I want to do a separate episode on 2014. That was such a consequential year for so many reasons. This That might even be a two-episode discussion. But right now, I just want to focus on the early phases of this antitrust litigation wave and how it it impacted the relationship between the athletes and the institutional stakeholders. So let's start with White, and then we'll talk about O'Bannon. In White, the athletes were seeking a very modest remedy. They simply wanted the NCAA to increase the value of the full athletics scholarship to capture the full cost of attending college. And remember, the, in 1956, the NCAA had this athletic scholarship that came into existence. And part of that was what was called laundry money. And laundry money was a fixed sum. It wasn't set according to any federal financial aid guidelines. It was simply an agreement among the schools that offered full athletic scholarships to pay the athletes some money just for incidental expenses, for just the basic sundry costs of attending college that wouldn't be covered by the traditional elements of a, an athletics scholarship. And that was not really a controversial part of that scholarship. And then in 1973, or maybe 1975, I've heard both dates, but in the mid-70s, at the behest of coaches and as ostensibly a cost-cutting measure, laundry money disappeared. And from the mid-1970s until 2011, there was zero laundry money, which meant that the actual cost and price and value of the existing athletic scholarship was set below the true cost of attending college. And there was enormous pushback on that. There had been discussions really for years 
about the unfairness of that scholarship. And there were prominent people in system stakeholders, coaches and athletics directors. And even uh, Miles Brand made some comments to this effect early in his tenure that they really didn't see anything wrong with a full cost of attendance scholarship or an additional stipend to cover those sundry expenses, so long as it was conceptualized as part of the athletics scholarship and therefore serving an ostensibly education-related purpose. And remember, this whole hypocrisy of trying to denominate the athletic scholarship as really an education-based scholarship, it goes back to the 1950s and recognition that they were going to give a full athletic scholarship, which was outright pay for play. So to, again, avoid that characterization, anything that was folded into the athletic scholarship was deemed okay for the most part by a lot of people, even uh, people who were in positions of authority within the NCAA. So you had this lawsuit that was trying to really push that issue forward because despite all this conversation and despite the support that the uh, full cost of attendance scholarship had, the NCAA didn't change it. They didn't do anything. And that's just the way the NCAA rolls. It's in that organization's DNA. They're not going to do anything unless they are forced to. And the white litigation is a perfect example of that. You had all this discussion outside of the litigation setting about the unfairness of this scholarship. Yet, in the litigation itself, the NCAA drew a line in the sand and said, over our dead bodies, are you going to get an order from this court that allows, forces us to pay a penny above what we're already paying. And that's the way they roll in litigation. And if you want to know the real NCAA, you just tune out all that public relations stuff and you don't go and look at their propaganda website or listen to any of their spokespeople. You go to their legal briefs. You go to the tactics that they employ in litigation, the words they actually use to assert and defend their interests in federal courts, and also to what they are saying to United States senators behind the scenes, and then how the NCAA's secret agenda gets laundered by these very same senators into NCAA-friendly proposed legislation. In 2014... There was an interesting exchange between Mark Emmert and Jay Rockefeller, who was chair of a Senate committee that was looking into the NCAA's exploitation of college athletes. So I'm, I'm going to talk a lot about that when I get to the year 2014. But Rockefeller went after Emmert based on the position that the NCAA had taken in a lawsuit that was pending. And In that lawsuit, which was claiming that the NCAA owed the athletes a legal duty, a contractual duty or fiduciary duty, to stand behind and honor all of these promises that the NCAA makes in its constitution, in its public propaganda, in its testimony before Congress, in its public relations campaign, and its website. It's a perfect example of that. You go to the website and you just get assaulted with all these statements and proclamations about all the things the NCAA is doing for athletes. But the lawyers in that suit, the NCAA's lawyers in that suit said, we owe you nothing. We have no duty to you of any kind. We have no contractual duty. We have no fiduciary duty. We have no legal duty. And by implication, we have no moral duty. Those are just words in a, on a page. Those are just words in a constitution. And they have no legal significance because we don't have a relationship with you. You're completely outside of our responsibility. And we owe you nothing. So Rockefeller reads from that lawsuit and Emmert starts doing the NCAA presidential two-step. And he points the finger back at 
his lawyers, his lawyers. And he says, well, that's a looks like an sounds like an unfortunate way of characterizing the the relationship. And I'm not a lawyer and I can't speak to what's legal and what's not. But we take seriously our obligation to the athletes. But then just a few months later, in January of 2015, the NCAA gets hit with the McCants lawsuit. And that was a suit by some former UNC athletes, football and women's basketball players, claiming that they basically were defrauded by the UNC and the NCAA because of the sham courses that were running through one of the departments there that a lot of athletes found themselves in. And in that lawsuit, the athletes raised claims of implied contract and breach of fiduciary duty. And in that complaint, they filed like a 100-page complaint, and they just listed statement after statement after statement after statement made by NCAA representatives, including Mark Emmert. And how did the NCAA respond to that case? After Emmert gets beaten down by Rockefeller in this hearing and says, well, that's the lawyer's fault. We don't have, that's not what I would have done. And I don't, I'm not a lawyer, but here's what I think. After that, the NCAA responds with a motion to dismiss the complaint in McCants. And it was based on the fact that the NCAA has absolutely no duty to these athletes, no relationship to these athletes that gives rise to any legal responsibility, no quasi-contractual obligations, no fiduciary obligations, nothing. And in fact, what the NCAA said in that their briefing and at an oral argument on the motion to dismiss was that all those statements, all those things that the NCAA says about athlete well-being and all these principles that are in Article 2 of the NCAA's Constitution and all their propaganda and all their advertising and all their marketing are nothing more than, quote unquote, vague and hortatory statements. And hortatory means just exclamatory. You know, you're cheering somebody on. You're exhorting them to do better and to aspire to whatever it is you want them to aspire to. But it has absolutely zero legal significance. And I don't know if Emmert has been called out on how the NCAA responded to the McCants lawsuit. But the, the point is that the NCAA is just wearing two completely different masks, one for public consumption. And then when they're pursuing their business interests behind the scene in the trenches in federal litigation and in congressional lobbying, they are ruthless. And they go after these athletes with this sense of self-righteousness and arrogance, and they take a totalitarian approach to their compensation limits. That's the real NCAA. And that's the NCAA that Mark Emmert and the NCAA National Office and the NCAA Board of Governors doesn't want the public to see. And that's exactly what the NCAA did in this white litigation. So the athletes, they're pursuing a fairly modest, very concrete, very specific remedy And the NCAA responded by saying, nope, this is outright pay for play. If these guys get the same kind of scholarship that any other regular student could get if they qualify under federal financial guidelines, then they are all of a sudden professionals. They're not amateurs. They're professionals. And this is going to bring college sports to its knees. If these athletes get a penny above this Mickey Mouse scholarship, that's capped below the full cost of attendance, then the entire marketplace is going to collapse. They made those arguments. That was the core of their arguments to a federal court. And the other thing that's important about White from a legal standpoint is that one of their main defenses was that they were entitled to absolute antitrust immunity because they were not engaged in commercial activity. Going back to the the Board of Regents analysis and the dicta in Board of Regents and the dissenting opinion in Board of Regents, they said, we have absolute antitrust immunity because antitrust laws can't touch us. And there was no question about that. And the reason that's significant is that as their antitrust immunity arguments evolved in federal litigation and then also were brought into uh, play in their congressional campaign starting in the fall of 2019, 
the NCAA started to disguise their quest for outright antitrust immunity. It is right front and center in this white suit. And in the settlement document, the case ultimately settled. I think I mentioned that in a prior episode. It only litigated, it was only litigated actively for about a year. And in this book, Indentured, that I talked about, Joe Nocera talks about the white case and the white settlement and gives some interesting background. So if you want to read about that, that would be a great resource. But the case settled. And in order for a class action case to be settled, you have to meet certain standards about what you've done and what the risks are and what the views of the lawyers are about the settlement and all this stuff to try to ensure that the settlement is fair. But this process is driven by and large by attorneys and the actual members of the class have very little control over it and very little input into it. And as Nosira makes clear in his book and his description of that white settlement, it was uh, really a sham settlement. And the athletes got virtually nothing. The NCAA didn't have to change its behavior one bit. The actual terms of the settlement didn't really even go to the cost of attendance scholarships. They were couched in these fluffy categories of promoting athlete well-being and all this stuff. But basically, the lawyers got a bunch of money. The athletes got uh, virtually nothing. And they NCAA preserved this compensation limit set below the full cost of attending college. But in this document where the lawyers, the plaintiff's lawyers, the athlete's lawyers are making the case to the judge that this is an appropriate settlement. Here's how they talk about the risks of litigation. And this is really the core of that section of the uh, brief that, that addresses all these factors. They say, this is a complex case involving difficult and novel issues of law and fact. The case against the NCAA involves the interpretation and application of principles of the antitrust laws to NCAA rules that have not previously been the subject of any antitrust challenge and the consideration of defenses that the NCAA has asserted based on its role in regulating college sports. The obstacles to a successful prosecution are formidable. First, there is a significant legal issue as to whether the NCAA to the extent that it is actually regulating student-athlete income, is subject to the antitrust laws at all, or whether, acting in that capacity, it enjoys antitrust immunity. So there you have it. And there was no question about that. There was no, NCAA wasn't disputing that. They wound up agreeing to the settlement and to the language that was contained in the brief that supported the settlement. So, and the same was true in O'Bannon. They were outright asking for antitrust immunity. So in looking at this trilogy of cases and looking at what happened in white, you begin to see the NCAA starting to frame a broader strategy to eliminate external regulators. So in this white case, the bottom line was that the athletes came away really with nothing, (laughs) nothing tangible. But there were a couple of silver linings there. One was the fact that the NCAA, I think, started to see some vulnerabilities in their totalitarian attachment to these compensation limits, particularly in a context where it's hard to defend from an equity standpoint. And in that case, the plaintiff's attorneys took the deposition of Walter Byers. Walter Byers, again, was the NCAA president from 1951 to 1987. He was the first chief executive officer in the NCAA, and he is the architect of the entire business model and then wrote this book in 1995 that kind of turned on all these fundamental principles. So they took uh, Byers' deposition out at his ranch somewhere out in, I think it was Kansas maybe, and uh, Byers was kind of cantankerous and he wasn't really mincing his words when he was talking about the nature of the relationship between the athletes and the institutions as defined by the athletic scholarship. And the plaintiff's lawyers went in really just wanting him to acknowledge that this laundry money stipend, this $15 a month stipend that was part of the athletic scholarship in 1956, was essentially serving the same purpose as this cost of attendance scholarship they were trying to get in 2006. And that the 
additional component, this additional component of the scholarship would have no impact on the NCAA or its economic interests or on amateurism or on the college sports marketplace, that it was just a silly argument that these modest stipends were going to have any consequence to the in-system institutional stakeholders. And so Byers, he really goes on a rant and Nocera addresses this in his book, and I think he actually devotes an entire chapter to this, and he calls it the deposition. But Byers just goes on and says, yeah, well, not only is that not going to do any harm to the NCAA, but the entire scholarships outright pay for play. So he basically acknowledges that despite all these historical machinations that he was involved in the 1950s to try to disguise the true purpose of the scholarship and creating the concept of the student athlete and all this stuff, Byers just says, look, this is outright pay for play. And this nominal additional amount, laundry money, cost of attendance scholarship, whatever you want to call it, has zero impact on the NCAA or the institutions, and their arguments are just BS. That was a powerful deposition. And a lot of people who were paying attention to the White case thought that Byers' testimony really gave the athletes an advantage. And that really had some people scratching their heads when out of nowhere comes this settlement, a settlement that did virtually nothing to advance the issues that were the purpose of the original lawsuit. But the NCAA dodges a bullet and they wind up only coming out of pocket about $10 million in actual settlement fees that were available to athletes. And then $8 million went to the lawyers. So that's a huge percentage of the overall money that the athletes got and really hard to defend that settlement. But that that case kind of, at least on paper, didn't do any harm to the NCAA, didn't advance the athletes' interests. Then in 2009, we have the O'Bannon suit. And O'Bannon was much more ambitious. And I want... I think it's helpful to think about these three California cases really in terms of the progression of what they were asking for. So in white, you had this very limited specific thing, this full cost of attendance scholarship. And then in O'Bannon in 2009, you have a group of athletes challenging an entire category of compensation limits. And those were the ones that related to name, image, and likeness. And the NCAA has a whole section. It's a bylaw 12.5 called promotional activities that sets forth the prohibitions on athletes using their name, image, and likeness for commercial purposes. And while the athletes weren't seeking a complete takedown of amateurism itself, they were challenging amateurism-based compensation limits. And then in Austin in 2014, you had a group of athletes trying to take down amateurism itself. The Austin case went to all NCAA compensation limits. It wasn't limited to this cost of attendance scholarship or just uh, nil compensation benefits. It was going for the, the whole range of amateurism-based compensation limits. And the O'Bannon case got all kinds of media. Uh, White ended in a whimper, and there wasn't a lot of talk. The case settled, and it just went into obscurity. But then O'Bannon is filed in, tw- in 2009, Everybody's talking about it, and you have some high-profile people. Ed O'Bannon was a well-known uh, athlete, a former UCLA basketball player that, yet, that led UCLA to the national championship in 1994. Oscar Robertson and Bill Russell are class representatives in O'Bannon, and that adds uh, some credibility to the suit. But there were a lot of people saying this could be the dagger in the heart of amateurism itself. And even though what the athletes were seeking was limited to nil, if the courts just simply struck down those compensation limits and then left to the free market the value of the athletes' nil rights and opportunities, then that really opens the door to just dismantling the entire amateurism-based system. And that's really how the lawsuit was framed 
initially. And the NCAA now convinced that its very existence was under assault and they were facing an existential crisis. They came in with their army of lawyers and all of their self-righteousness and arrogance and condescension, and they just did what they do best. They over-litigated the case, and there was motion after motion, and everything was a fight. And really, the only winners were the lawyers. And I'm going to do a separate episode on the true winners and losers in the antitrust cases, the ones that challenge NCAA compensation limits as applied to athletes. When you look at the numbers, when you look at how much was at stake, how much was spent, and how much of the total expenditures went into attorneys' pockets, it's really eye-opening. And we'll get to that once we finish up with this pay-for-play series. But boy, it's just really stunning. And a couple of issues that are relevant in framing O'Bannon in 2009 is that instead of suing just the NCAA, the athletes sued all of the major conferences. So they sued the Power Five conferences or what were going to become the Power Five conferences. And then they also sued two other defendants who were involved in licensing and selling athletes name image and likenesses without the athletes permission and i'm going to go into a brief synopsis of the facts of o'bannon here in just a second but that context is important because you really have the aggregation of this legal strategy coming together between the big time football interests and conferences and the ncaa because they had to cooperate in this suit so in in looking at this perfect storm and looking at the overall strategy that the NCAA and Power Five have used to eliminate external regulatory threats really came together in O'Bannon. And the other thing that's important about O'Bannon is that we still haven't fully formed the Power Five. So we're on the back end of most of the conference realignment, but there were still some fairly significant chess moves by what became the, the Power Five. While O'Bannon was pending, and I've talked about the ACC because it may be the best example of the transformation that occurred during conference realignment, but it got to 12 teams in 2005 by adding Boston College, and that enabled it to hold a conference championship game, which has a lot of value. But in 2011, they added Syracuse and Pittsburgh, and then in 2012, they lost Maryland to the Big Ten, but they picked up Louisville and Notre Dame. So in those two transactions, it was a net plus three for the ACC. That was significant, particularly with the Notre Dame acquisition. Now, that did not include football, and Notre Dame retained its autonomy in football because it does its own independent deals because of the quality of its brand and the value of its brand. But for all of the sp- all other sports, it's a member of the ACC. So in real time, during... O'Bannon, you had the coalescence of all of this power. And by the time O'Bannon went to trial in 2014, the Power Five was completely constructed. It was they, The conferences were in the final form that they were going to take. And in 2012, the Power Five conferences launch the college football playoff concept. They formed the CFP LLC. And then in 2015, just as the O'Bannon case is going from the district court to the Ninth Circuit, you had the very first CFP playoff and national championship. So you had these interests all morphing during O'Bannon and on the backside of it, you had this juggernaut Power Five conferences who really were aligned with the NCAA in their litigation strategy. And that is really important. And that carried forward into the Austin suits. Austin was filed, I think, in June of 2014. And the Austin attorneys used the same template as O'Bannon did in terms of kind of the basic format of the suit and the formation of the class and the, the people that they sued. So they sued all the big conferences. So you had the conference defendants, now the Power Five, marching in lockstep with the NCAA seamlessly from O'Bannon into Austin. And I think that is important because we talked about this in the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes 
and the relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA. Do they cooperate? Do they go their separate ways? And I think that at least on the litigation front, they really joined together in O'Bannon. And then that was cemented into Austin. So let's just talk real briefly about what O'Bannon was about and what ultimately wound up happening and what the consequence was for the relationship between the athletes and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. So O'Bannon was a case, again, as I mentioned earlier, that was limited to challenging the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness. And back in the day, prior to the O'Bannon suit, the NCAA and the schools and the conferences all got what I think most people would agree were coerced waivers of name, image, and likeness rights by any athlete as a condition of accepting an athletic scholarship. So you get your athletic scholarship, and part of that transaction is you sign a document that says that you're giving to your school, your conference, and the NCAA the right for them to use and sell your name, image, and likeness, and any intellectual property that's attached to it. And the NCAA and the conferences and the schools use that claimed right to sell to broadcast media outlets group licensing rights for all of their athletes and all their sports. But they also were selling the individual rights. And one of the things that the NCAA did was they granted the use and sale of those rights to this company called the Collegiate Licensing Company. I think that they were affiliated with the NCAA and they were kind of the licensing arm of the NCAA. And then the collegiate licensing company would go out into the market and try to exploit the intellectual property of the athletes. And one of the ways that they did that was by selling the nil rights of these athletes to a company called EA Sports. And EA Sports was a video manufacturer, and their big market was sports gaming videos. So they had all different sports, and they would try to make realistic uh, contests where people could compete, the players could compete and control their rosters and their teams and, and all that stuff. So the NCAA gives the license to the CLC, the Collegiate Licensing Company. The CLC then sells it to EA, produces these videos, including college basketball. And so they would have a, a, the team name and the team roster, and you could pick teams and then play against each other. The players were represented by avatars. And the avatars didn't have explicit player identification on them. They didn't have the, like the names on the back of their jerseys or anything that would have directly linked the avatar to an individual player. But what they did was they tried to make certain players, particularly star players, look unmistakably like the real thing. And they did that with Ed O'Bannon. And so the story goes, and O'Bannon has told this um, many times, that he was over at a relative's house. I don't know if it was a cousin or a nephew or somebody's house. And his relative was playing the EA sports game on his TV. And UCLA was one of the teams that, that was competing in that game he was playing. And there is an avatar on the UCLA roster of a guy that has some unique characteristics that just happen to be the same characteristics that Ed O'Bannon has. So O'Bannon had a distinctive set of features and skills that really made him unique and identifiable. So he's a 6'9 black guy. So the avatar was a 6'9 black guy. He's left-handed. The avatar was left-handed. His signature move was a silky smooth jumper from mid-range. And the avatar has that. So O'Bannon's watching this and he's just kind of checking out the game. And O'Bannon says, wait a minute, that's me. <laughs> and it was him. It was they purposely created that avatar to mimic Ed O'Bannon without putting his name on the jersey. And so the, his relative said, yeah, Ed, that's you. That's obviously you. And then, then he says, oh, and by the way, Ed, why aren't you getting any of this action? They're using your identity. This is like identity theft. And they're plastering it on this video that they're selling worldwide. 
And so the story goes that O'Bannon mulls that over, and the more he thinks about it, the angrier he gets. And he realizes that the NCAA has just stolen his intellectual property and sold it at, at a very nice profit to people who are out in the market exploiting it. So he consults lawyers, and then he winds up with, with the team that winds up filing the lawsuit. And as I mentioned earlier, so they sue the NCAA, they sue the Power Five conference defendants, they also sue the CLC, the Collegiate Licensing Company, and they sue EA Sports. And the remedies that they were seeking were damages and injunctive relief. And we talked about both of those remedies in an antitrust suit and how they're different. And, and I'll talk about that in the context of, of the O'Bannon suit. But the damages component, the greatest risk to really to the defendants was this damages component because there were obviously clear measurable damages in the value of the intellectual property that was sold to the CLC and then to EA Sports. And under antitrust laws, if a case goes to a full damages trial and there's an award of damages, then that number is tripled. So the CLC and EA and the NCAA settled out the damages claims. And that settlement, I think, totaled $60 million. And the plaintiff's lawyers got $20 million of that, at least. And so that just eliminated EA Sports and the CLC. And then the rest of the litigation was focused on the injunctive relief. And what the athletes were seeking was a permanent injunction that would prevent the NCAA from enforcing its name, image, and likeness compensation limits. And even though the damage component was in the rearview mirror, a judge can provide affirmative relief in an injunction. And that's what Judge Wilkin did. So the, the case goes through years of litigation and just brutal litigation and expensive litigation. And then uh, the parties conduct a trial and it was a bench trial. So Judge Wilkin heard the evidence. There wasn't a jury. And she's an antitrust expert, so the case, I guess, was probably as efficient as a federal antitrust case can be, but it still dragged on and on and on, and that was due in large part to the NCAA's scorched earth litigation tactics. And ultimately, Judge Wilkin, after hearing all this evidence, and again, as we discussed in the episodes leading up to Austin, amateurism was relevant in this antitrust analysis under a rule of reason analysis because the NCAA asserted that as their primary pro-competitive justification for their amateurism based compensation limits, in this case, those that applied to name, image, and likeness. So Judge Wilkin just does a complete takedown of amateurism as a pro-competitive justification. And she basically sticks it to the NCAA on that narrow point. But she doesn't just leave the, the nil market open to free market forces. Instead, she crafts a remedy within this injunctive relief that limited the relief to two types of essentially compensation. And in an injunction, a judge can award affirmative relief. And it's injunctions are a tricky area of the law. But basically what she said is that the NCAA could not put a cap on two things. One was the athletic scholarship up to the full cost of attendance. So that injunction then granted the athletes the, same, the, the full cost of attendance scholarship that they didn't get in white. And that was important. And then the second thing that Judge Wilkin did was she said that the NCAA could not put a cap on name, image, and likeness compensation that was set below $5,000 a year per athlete. And those that $5,000 payment could be put into trust. And then after certain conditions are met, like graduation, then the athlete could get that money. So the remedy in O'Bannon was the full cost of attendance scholarship and $5,000 a year per athlete put into trust to be drawn at a later date. Not a huge amount of money at issue there. And not an open market, not an open nil market, not simply an injunction that says the NCAA can't enforce any compensation limit that relates to name, image, and likeness. So both sides appeal, and the NCAA argues, as it did in white, 
that as a threshold matter, the NCAA can't be subject to antitrust liability because they are immune from antitrust laws altogether based on this Board of Regents dicta and based on their claim that they are not a commercial actor and they are not engaging in commercial activity and it's all about education and it's all about the student athlete and it's all about all of these non-economic, non-commercial interests. So the Ninth Circuit takes the case and they reject out of hand all these threshold issues that the NCAA raises and says, you know, no, you're not going to get antitrust immunity. And all that language from Board of Regents was dicta and you're making too much of that case. We're going to subject you to the full rule of reason analysis. And then they look at the two remedies that the district court fashioned and they uphold the full cost of attendance scholarship. But they strike down the trust funds. And we've talked about this before. And their basis for striking down the trust funds was deferential to the NCAA's views on amateurism. So the court held that any remedy that was not tethered to education, like the cost of attendance stipend, would be impermissible because that would cross this invisible line from amateurism to professionalism, or at least open the door to that. And the Ninth Circuit said, we're not going to go there. And now this was a split decision. There are three Ninth Circuit judges that heard the case. And the dissenting judge, Judge Thomas, said, wait a minute, you're misapplying amateurism. And we've talked about that because the Ninth Circuit was pulling amateurism out as a freestanding value rather than looking at its relevance as a pro-competitive justification in the rule of reason analysis. And then the focus of the inquiry went from what's best for consumers to what's best for the NCAA. (laughs) And uh, I think Thomas was right about that. But the net result after the Ninth Circuit's opinion was that all that the athletes got out of O'Bannon was the full cost of attendance scholarship, which is not insignificant, but it is a very small remedy compared to the value of the overall market and the billions and billions of dollars that, that came in. Both sides appealed O'Bannon to the United States Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court declined to hear the case late in 2016. And I think one of the reasons that they didn't take up the case then was that the court only had eight members because of Justice Scalia's death and Neil Gorsuch had not been nominated and confirmed to replace Scalia. So the court was operating at less than full capacity. And I think they were being a little more selective in the cases that they took, but they passed on O'Bannon, although the attorney's fees litigation extended well into 2018. And when we get into this transition into the name, image, and likeness campaign in state legislatures and then in, in Congress, I'm going to talk about the transition because up until just before this name, image, and likeness debate in 2019, the NCAA was fighting tooth and nail to not pay attorney's fees because they believed they were right and they were going to fight to the bitter end. So two things to come out of this, I think that are really important in the perfect storm. One relates to the nature of the athletic scholarship, because what's interesting about the O'Bannon cost of attendance remedy is that it arose in the context of a lawsuit challenging compensation limits for name, image, and likeness. So in white, the sole remedy they were seeking was the cost of attendance scholarship. It wasn't tied into any other compensation limit. It had no other context. The argument was the cap that is set below the full cost of attendance violates antitrust laws, and it's not reasonable, and it's not going to pass muster under a rule of reason analysis. That's a much different type of addition to the pre-existing athletic scholarship than in O'Bannon, where the court gave the full cost of attendance scholarship and the cost of attendance stipend as name, image, and likeness compensation. And there's simply no other way to describe it because there was no other reason that the court could have added that remedy except as name, image, and likeness 
compensation. So in the context of this athletic scholarship and how it's described and what the NCAA wants it to represent and the fact that it's nothing more than the reasonable reimbursement and cost for getting a college education rather than outright pay for play, this O'Bannon remedy really blurs that line because they are taking a form of compensation and putting it into this quote-unquote education-related athletics scholarship. And that component of the new athletic scholarship post-O'Bannon explicitly includes pay for play. And I think that is important, at least symbolically, because the way that the uh, decision-makers have tried to make sense of this hypocritical characterization of outright pay-for-play as nothing more than reimbursement for the legitimate costs of attending college. It's, it's just a sham. And the Ninth Circuit, the district court in the Ninth Circuit, really put an exclamation point on that sham by fundamentally altering the nature of the athletics scholarship by including outright compensation. So that was an aspect of the decision that didn't get a lot of attention. And one of the reasons for that, and this goes to the the second point I want to make before I close this out, and that is the impact that O'Bannon had outside of the actual four corners of the litigation itself. And there was enormous anxiety among the NCAA interests, among the Power Five interests, and among a lot of institutional stakeholders about what was going to come out of O'Bannon. And that fear really forced the powerful football interests to take a good hard look at what the afterworld might look like, the after scenario might look like, where there were no compensation limits on name, image, and likeness, and then possibly under in Austin, no compensation limits at all. So they were trying to get ahead of the game here, and they began to formulate a strategy, the Power Five coming together. And again, back in the Prisoner's Dilemma episodes, I talked about the glue that binds the Power Five and the NCAA, and that's this overarching compensation limit. But this was glue that was binding the Power Five because they wanted to do some things that were inconsistent with existing NCAA regulations, and they had a list of benefits that they wanted to provide, none of them game-changing, and most of them were benefits that had either been provided in the past or had been the subject of conversation for years or even decades. So there was no great magic leap forward. The Power Five wanted to try to ameliorate the perception that they were not sensitive to the needs of the athletes or to the true value of the athletes. And that initiative ultimately resulted in this autonomy classification that's so important that we'll, again, we'll talk about in the next episode. But under that autonomy legislation, which went into effect in 2014, the Power Five offered full cost of attendance scholarships, but they had nothing to do with no compensation. So they were really outside of the O'Bannon framework. And they even noted in their O'Bannon briefing in the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court that they had voluntarily made the change to the full cost of attendance scholarship, which which was really the only remedy that was left in O'Bannon. And the Ninth Circuit said in a footnote, and this was interesting, they said, even though the NCAA, the Power Five, have uh, gone to this full cost of attendance scholarship, quote unquote, voluntarily, they could change that decision. And so we're going to leave in place in the injunction the requirement that they cannot set a cap, a scholarship cap set below the full cost of attendance. So that's just a little check on the NCAA and the Power Five in case they decide to do what they did in 1973, which was to take away that money for incidental and sundry expenses. And that that lasted for, I don't know, 40 years. So on the backside of O'Bannon, you really didn't have the athletes that much better off than they were before. And again, that's not to denigrate the value of the cost of attendance stipend. That's That means a lot to these athletes. But in terms of the amount of money that was being brought in, and in terms of the impact on the NCAA's business model and its amateurism-based compensation limits, it had virtually zero impact. In fact, as I said in uh, a prior episode, it may actually have put the athletes in a worse position because on the backside of O'Bannon with this education 
education versus non-education related distinction, you had a form of antitrust immunity for any payments to athletes that were not related to education, which forecloses the possibility of an open market for the value of the athlete's services. So heading out of O'Bannon and into Austin and into this new autonomy classification, we're in 2014, and 2014 was a really important year, and some really important things happened in 2014. And we're going to talk about that. And one of them is the way that the NCAA started to shift its legal strategy and its legal counsel away from the West Coast, where these suits were being filed, and to Washington, D.C. and New York City. And that was a really consequential shift. And that occurred in the the transition from O'Bannon to Austin and really started to lay the foundation for this broader-based campaign to eliminate external regulators, all external regulators, Congress, federal courts, and state legislatures, so that the NCAA and the Power Five could be free to run wild in the college sports marketplace without regard to how they treated the athletes who provided the value in the product. So in the next episode, we are going to get right to 2014. And we'll see how far we get. I may have to break that up into a couple of episodes because I want to talk about this Northwestern case because this whole issue of athletes as employees really settled down in the 1980s and there wasn't a lot of talk about that. That came back with a vengeance in 2014 with this Northwestern case where the football team tried to organize a union. And the fundamental inquiry there, the the fundamental factual inquiry was whether those football players were employees. So that's, I'm going to go through the testimony in that case. The NCAA, although not a party, filed a friend of the court brief, and I'm going to talk about that because it's consequential. And then there are a lot of other things going on in 2014 that really started to bring this perfect storm into shape heading into 2019. So we'll get right to that. All right. So thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you along for the ride. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.